0: You likely have heard the quote, generally attributed to Mark Twain, everyone talks about the weather, but no one does anything about it. It might be a bit similar when it comes to business and organizational culture. Everyone talks about it, but few seem to know exactly what it is or how to measure it or what it means to the bottom line of a business. But we have one of those very few experts with us today. She is an award-winning professor who is using crowdsourced data and surveys to uncover corporate culture and its effect on ethics, innovation, and the market value of the business. It's Professor Jillian Grennan of Duke University's Fuqua School of Business on the Manager Message Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Manager Message Podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr.
0: Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. Here each week, we discuss three foundational components for growing your business – First, your message, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want to share. Second, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And third, management habits that will shape your culture and turn your improvements into an everyday business advantage. We know it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. Today, we're taking on corporate culture. It certainly ties into the things people feel about a business and what they say about it. Culture gets a lot of credit when things go well for an organization and much of the blame when there is failure. Many people point to toxic cultures at Volkswagen or Wells Fargo for their problems and horrible mistakes in judgment. But what exactly is corporate culture and how does it affect the everyday work of a business? Well, Jillian Grennan is an assistant professor of finance at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business, my MBA alma mater where she won the Excellence in Teaching Award in 2017 and has a very interesting research program going. Along with a few expert colleagues, she has been able to put some firm numbers into this squishy soft idea that many of us think about when it comes to culture. Whether you're looking at culture as something to build and reinforce in your organization or team, or as a key factor in deciding where you want to work in the first place, I believe you'll find this entire line of research very interesting, I certainly have. Hey, Jillian Grennan, welcome to our big messaging show.
2: Thank you, Jim. I'm happy to be here.
0: Thank you. You're coming to us from Philadelphia today, right? I am. Okay. Appreciate you joining us because culture, this whole topic is something very important for most organizational leaders and their boards, and even individual workers. But it also seems from the outside, at least to me, very difficult of how you're going to take that from the... 50,000 foot conceptual level to something that is more practical and accessible for working professionals. It's more difficult to measure than awareness or customer experience or movements and share prices. You must have had some compelling reasons to take all of this on. What drew you to this line of research of marrying culture and finance in the first place?
2: I think it was exactly what you were saying, that you can feel it within the business. So I had a bunch of experience in different organizations before I decided to pursue an academic career. And I initially had worked at a startup firm where it was only seven of us. It was mostly men, guys from MIT and Harvard, and we were in Boston in a small industrial setting. And you could just see how one personality could really drive a culture And it was something that I was not sure I wanted to stay in a small firm because of that. And then I ended up going in the complete opposite direction after I graduated. And I went to work at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors down in Washington, D.C. So a much more bureaucratic, big organization. And there, again, you just saw how decisions were made. And it really, there was something you could feel there that was different. Ultimately, I went to an international organization afterwards. I went to the World Trade Organization thinking that Maybe it was just because it was the U.S. government, an international organization will be better. And again, I just saw those same challenges. And then finally, I actually did consulting, which is you get to see so many different firms and you get to go inside and ask questions. And this was actually in the post Enron era. And I saw a lot of people trying to, you know, my hands are tied behind my back because I'm subject to these rules And so when I got to grad school and then everybody was talking about how governance had made such a difference in the post-Enron world, I often thought that they were actually looking at the wrong channel. And that I thought if you really wanted to get down to the fundamentals and fix some of these problems, you had to fix the culture. And so that's what originally led me to say, okay, can we quantify it in any way? Because I really think that this is what's driving it.
0: Well, that's interesting because you have felt it and seen it from different perspectives. But as we mentioned, you're an assistant professor of finance, and you've been collaborating with other financial researchers. My long ago bachelor's degree was in finance, and I I tend to think of finance experts as a a fairly skeptical lot, right? They're prove-it-to-me types. And so the team, you began your research by talking to CEOs and CFOs, chief financial officers. Part of what I found interesting, Jillian, is that you weren't coming at this from the perspective we might typically think of of, say, human resources or organizational behavior, but I kind of imagine it's a tough crowd.
2: Oh, it certainly was a tough crowd. I haven't been a good consultant, though, so you always want to know where your value added is and what you can do to help in that way. And so I always wanted to quantify things. I think that's the way my mind works. And so having, I think actually asking finance professionals, it was just about making sure we asked the question in the right way. So we usually started off our interviews with open-ended questions, and we'd ask them to describe their culture. And originally, we went down this path where we'd be like, oh, what percentage of your firm value do you think you can attribute to culture? And some people could answer this, and they'd give these beautiful answers and be very precise, and you'd be like 8%, 25%. But it was a really big range. And then what we found was some people just couldn't answer that question. And so then we're like, oh, it has to be something else. And we asked this question about M&A. And the question about M&A just seemed to resonate with every finance professional in which we asked them, you know, you have a well-aligned culture at your firm. You're going after a firm in a potential acquisition that has a culture that's misaligned with your firm. Are you going to change your bid or your offer for that firm? And consistently, we heard across the board either we're not going to make a bid where we're going to make a discount of ten to thirty percent, and once you started to phrase it that way, then people were like, "Oh, exactly." Then that's how much we attribute to the value of culture.
0: It's an interesting approach, and in that looking back, that makes a lot of sense, Jillian. You know, if you ask that first question of, "Do you think it's important?" then there's kind of a socially correct answer, right? If you're an organizational leader, you don't want to say the culture is important. Then you know how do you attach some sort of number to it? But then you went back for people who are accustomed to doing due diligence or doing pretty specific financial analysis and gave them that scenario, scenario that they would find familiar, and that seemed like a good way to to start putting some numbers around this. Do you find there's variability in the executives that you talk to of priority that they assign to culture, for example, whether they the CEOs have a financial background versus a legal background or operations or marketing or HR?
2: I mean, universally across the board, I would say that most people were very adamant that culture ends up mattering. And I think it was whether they had an experience over time that made them feel it or say it, they did. To some extent, we saw that, yes, the sales, the people who are in natural leadership positions who were not in the financial role or not in a chief operating role were certainly more enthusiastic perhaps, about culture. So when we did it, we broke down into different categories and we've looked at a lot of these. Some of the things that surprised me the most is, you know, you hear all these things about family firms being the place where culture is, you know, it's really friendly. We have this vibe. We didn't see any difference between family firms and non-family firms. We actually did not see any difference between public firms and private firms. And sort of same thing with size of the firm. So I think a lot of people, or at least my experience was the small firms can be very dominated by a few individuals, whereas big firms, it has to be more rigid culture. And everybody seemed to think that it was important across these different connections, maybe with CFOs being the slightly more negative group.
0: That violates some of my expectations of going in where you look at where the differences would come. Maybe like a, a lot of others, I would tend to think that a family business, for example, or a private firm versus a public one would seem to be one where the, kind of the family's closer, if you will, that the culture would seem to be maybe a more palpable, more manageable element of the business as opposed to, say, a, a larger public company, which would be maybe struggling with how do you establish a culture and, and reinforce it. So that's interesting. Did you find some areas that did show differences? in the importance of culture and and as we talked through as well is what did you find to be the bottom line impact?
2: So the bottom line impact was that culture was one of the most important, if not the most important driver of value. I thought this was one of those things where people sort of pushed back on us and they said it was because you did these culture surveys or you framed it as a culture interview. And so we actually were able to get other researchers to put a question on a survey that was completely unrelated, where they were asking about taxes and sort of the business outlook. And we asked them to put one question where it was like, you know, what are the top 10 things that drive firm value? And it was open-ended. And we actually got almost identical responses to what we got in our survey, which was the top three things are your corporate culture, your strategic plan, and then the CEO. And so in that sense that we think that it is really important regardless of who you're asking. And it's a big driver of value. And I think for us, we sort of drilled down not necessarily into give us this statement of value where we try to do it in different ways. We drilled down into what actions within the firm do you think it most affects? So were there certain decisions where, for example, investment? And I thought that was one of those really interesting questions, because you always wonder what behind an investment decision or how budgets get allocated and some groups get more money than others. And we seem to find that there was certainly a big connection between culture there. And it could go in either direction. It could be some cultures just inhibited them from taking risk. And then some cultures actually made you too risk loving. And so we tried to quantify that question. And that was one where we got you know 10 to 30% difference in what you would think of as the optimal investment decision you were deviating from it because of your culture.
0: And how did you see that? I'm not sure how specifically you were able to uncover some of these elements, but say apply to decision-making, whether it be an acquisition or major capital investment or, you know, some other growth decision for the business. You know, I can imagine there are different elements of culture here. The, how decisions are made? Is it how diverse are this, the decision-making teams? What is the... The habits and norms around open discussion of questioning, assumptions, those sorts of things. I don't know it as well as you. How did you see that behaviorally or structurally playing out?
2: I always think of Amazon as a great example in the sense that a lot of people think Amazon has a really bad culture. And there was a debate a few years back where they were on the newspaper headlines. And yet, when you look at it in more of if you're thinking about culture in relation to firm value, It's certainly a very effective culture. And it's a culture where you talk to insiders and they will tell you that they have this notion, which I think is very challenging to develop correctly within an organization, of you go in and you critique. And it's okay to question decisions and it's okay to have this back and forth. And I think that's actually really good for creating an environment where you're going to be innovative, where you're going to adapt to changes. Yet they were very adamant that once a decision was made, It's not about building consensus and wasting a lot of time, which they had this sense of urgency, a decision's made, everybody's on board, and you go from there. And that challenge of balancing urgency and sort of agreement, but also allowing for creative types to fit in is something that came up time and again in some of our interviews. Remember, we were talking with an executive who had basically sort of more of an old manufacturing firm that then... Acquired a young group in San Francisco to help sort of modernize their business. And he was just saying how, with that diverse group and a young team who's out in San Francisco that wants flexible hours, and they act a little bit more entitled than some of the older employees in the sort of traditional manufacturing group, that it was really hard to structure the business and get everybody on the same page because they seem to be going in sort of their own divisions or their own sort of autonomous structure. And in that sense, it was having to ha- say, okay, let's come up with ways that everybody's working towards a same common focus. But sometimes it takes a really long time to build that consensus. And so I think these organizations that are able to get the common focus and get people urgency behind that common focus are the ones that seem to be the most successful.
0: Changes in the workforce you know, you've got the rise of remote workers, there are more freelancers and independent workers. Different expectations, perhaps generationally, in terms of the culture, the why of the organization. Any signs that building and reinforcing culture is actually becoming more difficult because of those elements of a modern workforce?
2: I mean, I think that's a great research question. It's one of those ones that I would love to go after in some of those senses. I think hiring and firing decisions are critical and making sure that you have the right match and to some extent that there's certainly one of the things that we saw that was very important is it's not just your stated values. Most firms have well-defined stated values. It's the rest of it. It's the coming up with day-to-day actions that sort of reinforce those values. It's convincing your employees that, you know, you say integrity is a value. Okay, I see how we're getting internal communication to suggest that, you know, we must make ethical decisions, but are you actually going to go and admonish somebody who doesn't do the right thing. And so getting, you know, step after step after step in line with those values can be really challenging. And I find that sort of firms today, I don't have pure evidence on this, but I have looked at it a little bit myself in the data, is that, you know, we see more and more of these sort of community-based values that are being advertised or stated that the firms, you know, diversity is important, empowering employees are important, all of this stuff. And I wonder how much of it is on the career page to attract employees versus how much of it is actually followed through in day-to-day actions within the firm. And certainly some area where I seem to think that there might be a disconnect.
0: It's a great point. And you talked about stated values and and how that manifests itself, or if it does, there was a, a book called the Mission Statement Book Boy, it was quite an undertaking. They took a look at about 300 different organizational mission statements and were looking for common threads of language and and how they were developed. And as you might suspect, Jillian, and message managers out there, they're very common. I mean, they're very comparable across all of the few hundred different mission statements. I think the word service was the one that appeared the most often. But a lot of those themes, as you would talk about empowerment, diversity, community, at some level most every mission statement sounds pretty much the same and so i guess the key here is how does that play out how consistent is it in the everyday movements and conversations in the company and wondering if you're seeing some patterns Jillian and how companies are specifically investing in culture is it in assessment or coaching or how they talk about themselves there's so many ways it could go Are you seeing patterns of what tends to be effective in how companies invest in their culture?
2: So we saw a lot of variety in what people do. I think there's so many different techniques from internal videos to messaging to sending out newspaper articles to all of the employees to sort of reinforce what the culture is. One of the things that I think that people at least... From the executive's viewpoint, and I heard repeatedly, was executives who made the effort to get in front of all employees, especially if it was a big firm, every year to reinforce the culture. That seemed to be very important. Also, the onboarding. I mean, obviously, hiring and firing is going to make a big difference. But when you hire and fire, are you giving a whole history of the firm? And one of the techniques that I thought was really interesting and sort of helped people get onboarding can take six months in some firms, it can take, you know, much less time. And what they did was they actually had employees go through what were sort of critical decisions of the firm, whether it was an investment decision or a critical policy that the firm had, and explain that policy within the context of the firm's culture. And they thought that that was the best way to help the employees sort of start to understand and indoctrinate them and promote it from within. I mean, other things you sort of do regularly see people demonstrating culture sort of those. If you have an example of somebody, even a low level employee who does something that's sort of very heroic for the culture, making it seem like it's heroic and celebrating them. Those things seem to matter a lot when they're actually just little things that you can change. I think some of the other points were more HR level stuff, which in some sense, it's an interesting way of like, okay, how can we be more systematic about measuring this? One policy that I found very interesting was a firm that started to evaluate its mid-level managers on how many people below them got promoted. And that they thought that that was a sense of, you know, good culture rather than just judging them on their sales metric, they added this additional component to it because they wanted somebody who was investing in the culture and investing, developing the company.
0: That's really interesting. One of the things that I've seen when it comes to a number of competencies inside an organization is we tend to kind of forget that role of the middle manager. Someone who is a team leader has some direct reports and so many times they are asked to both model certain behaviors and also coach to those behaviors. And chances are they haven't had a good model themselves or they haven't been coached into it. There's there's some sort of higher level directive or priority that comes to them. And then their direct reports on the other side are looking to them to say, okay, so what's really important and, and how do we do that? So to your point, Jillian, are there some things that you've seen to help equip those middle managers, those vital people? They're in the middle playing this out every day that tend to be effective or are there some things that you see where companies are putting into some training or this or that that seem to not help the culture at all?
2: So we definitely saw that mid-level management were the ones that sustained the culture and one of the policies that I learned was that mid-level management were a little fearful of the upper-level management as they realized that they're getting up to that higher echelon and that implementing a peer policy where mid-level managers, you know, instead of having the competition with each other that they typically would have, had this as a mentoring relationship to develop their leadership skills and to develop the within firm ability to sustain the culture seemed to be a successful one, at least at one firm. I think the other thing is sort of if you were asking about blind spots or when not to do it, it's when to invest in culture. And I thought this was a critical thing that many firms said to us was you can't just invest in culture when you're profitable and doing well. That's the worst time to invest in culture. You generally, your employees are already like very happy. It's like when things are not going well, and I realize that resources are scarce then, but they a lot of people get, brought the recession up as a great example or sort of lean times after the recession where they had to double down on their culture, and they think that that made all the difference in terms of turning things around.
0: Well, that would make sense, right? I mean... When things are going well, when there's kind of a high tide there, people have more probably of an abundance mentality. They feel less threatened. They feel less vulnerable. And the culture has its best chance to be healthy. And I think what you're saying, much as we would on the marketing side say, you know, the time to invest in, in your brand, to invest in lots of other activities is during a dip in the economy, right? That's when you can pick up market share. The time to double down on investment in your culture is when things are less certain and maybe uh, less good.
2: Yeah, I think that's totally the case. And one of the other sort of most interesting facts that I saw that is consistent in the data, regardless of what industry we looked at, was that there seems to continually be this sense that the top achieving firms have somehow got culture right, the people in the middle of the pack have not, but the upstarts are those that are trying to disrupt the industry. People have always said that they have the culture right too, but their difference in culture is very spread. You know, they seem to have different values. And so I wonder, to some extent, I work in finance, so I've thought a lot about how banks are adapting to fintechs or how they're trying to bring, you know, this new digital transformation into the banking world. And it's one of those industries where you have so many legacy systems, you have a lot of challenges to doing that, and you have you know, relatively few players to some extent. And, but they have to ultimately start to pick up some of those values and some of those patterns of day-to-day actions that are in the more upstart firms to be able to move forward in a successful manner.
0: You mentioned some overall blind spots that team leaders, organizational leaders might have and some perhaps incorrect assumptions that uh, they may, we've mentioned a few, maybe the assumption that a private business or a family business has an inside track on developing a a healthier, more effective culture. That's not necessarily the case about uh, when to make sure you're investing heavily enough in your culture. Are there any other kind of blind spots or if you were going to give just a quick briefing to organizational leaders and say, here are the things to keep in mind, even some of them might violate what you've been led to believe or might have assumed, but these are the things that will really be over the long haul, the most effective for you in terms of building and reinforcing that culture.
2: I think one thing that really stood out to me was a person talking about, firing and the importance of doing it swiftly. And the discussion that, you know, if you know somebody who's in a leadership role, that, you know, maybe they have a great vision or strategy, but they're just known to be difficult. That also is just like an M&A deal where you want to discount the person because you fear everybody underneath that person has been poisoned to some degree. And so you might have to end up then firing the whole team or something like that. And they were just saying to basically get rid of employees that are not a cultural fit faster. (laughs) And I thought that was really interesting. We don't have a lot of evidence on this. There were certainly people who told us that they used the recession as a time period to fire people who were not necessarily a good cultural fit that somehow passed a checklist of competencies. And so it's how do you actually get an element like that into an annual review. And that was where I thought some of these ideas about how many people below you got promoted or how many of your ideas ended up ultimately being successful could be a way to get in there. I think other things that seem to commonly... You know, work is just like having a sort of checklist of what was your policies. If you are high on levels of integrity or you want to have a collaborative environment, making sure that the doors are open and that people are you know strongly focused on customers, if that's what you want to have as your core business.
0: I think we all would feel like our intentions are, are pretty good when it comes to culture and, and the like. But again, taking a specific, objective, deep breath sort of view about culture This is all fascinating and very practical. So we're going to put in our show description, our show notes here, some links to the work that you and your colleagues have been doing. So what's next? Every time we talk about an important finding, even in our conversation today, there are a couple more questions that come up. So (laughs) where are you uh, looking to follow up in this line or maybe even other lines of research? What's next for you?
2: So I actually did just recently complete a paper looking at banks, and it was one of the ones where I think consistent communication is the key message that's come out of it. I think oftentimes we're not really sure what the mechanism is leaders can do to actually change the culture. And so I thought you know banks after the crisis clearly needed to change their culture. The bank paper is a really exciting paper because we were able to use company websites all the way back to basically the beginning of the internet, going back to 2000. And we looked at the career page versus the investor relations page versus the about us page. And we said, do they describe the values differently? And what was really striking to me is that they definitely describe the values differently. And so I just asked the simple question of if you're consistent across all of these different sort of themes within your website, Do we see better performance? And we saw it. And then I asked another question. I said, well, really, we think of culture, at least from an academic perspective, is that where it matters the most is in decisions where there's a lot of uncertainty. And so for the banks, I'm looking at the financial crisis. I'm looking at private mortgage-backed securities. There was a sense that, you know, Nobody had a lot of certainty about the valuation of private mortgage-backed securities. Some people were just certainly getting them off their books, but some people were retaining them. And what I show is that these firms where there was inconsistency in the way they communicated their culture were also the ones who ended up retaining more private mortgage-backed securities, ended up performing worse during the crisis. Mind you, most banks were down 30%, but doing even worse on top of that. And then what I end up looking at is what's happened post We're 10 years post the financial crisis, and I see, well, yes, we have become more consistent. It's actually really striking to me that the two areas where we're still inconsistent is in integrity. We mostly tell our investors we have high integrity and don't communicate that to our employees, and then also in customer relations, where our About Us section is all about our customers, but we don't do a good job of conveying it to our employees.
0: That's really interesting. We might have to come back to you later and talk about uh, the (laughs) specifics of that. And I think, as you're saying, banking is a great industry to look at because it is becoming more of a meld of the digital, and still it's a very high-touch environment from employees to their customers in terms of brick-and-mortar locations and personal touches and decisions to make, along with the impact of the fintechs and major disruptions in the industry, all of that together. Jillian Grennan, this has been really interesting and fascinating. Thank you so much for for coming on to the Manager Message podcast. We hope to talk to you again soon.
2: Great. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun.
0: Thank you, Message Managers, for joining the podcast. And thanks again to Jillian Grennan from Duke University's Fuqua School of Business for coming on and talking about the link between the actual financial performance of organizations and their culture and how messaging plays into that. One of my major takeaways was the point that Jillian just made about consistency and how important that is. As she studied in the bank setting, how what's communicated about integrity and customer service has often been different between what is communicated to investors versus the message that goes internally into employees and how costly It can be in terms of financial performance when there is inconsistency. Great nugget there. We're generating a lot of momentum here on the podcast. We want to keep things going. If you haven't done so yet, then please tap subscribe on your way out. Your five-star rating will make it easier for other professionals to find us and join us as well. I can recommend another free weekly resource too, the Message Manager Memo. That's a brief weekly email with practical tips and examples It's a one-minute read on average, and you'll actually enjoy seeing it in your inbox. It takes about 10 seconds or so to sign up on my website, jimkarr.com, K-A-R-R-H. And I'd be happy to connect with you on LinkedIn. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jim Carr. Happy to talk directly. You might have some suggestions for the podcast or would like to bounce a messaging idea. Perhaps your organization or company needs to sharpen its message and equip more people with the tools and confidence to share that message widely and consistently. Perhaps you're part of an association or a group that would be a great fit to have me visit as a professional speaker. I do have a number of programs, all the way from keynotes to workshops to panel discussions. We always try to tailor the message according to what the organization needs, a starting point, what's on people's minds. You can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com We can set up a time to talk by phone if you like. My mobile number is also on the website. We try to keep this very simple. Three steps, no pressure. You and I would have a phone or Zoom conversation for a few minutes, assess fit, what it is you're trying to accomplish, and whether improved messaging can help you get there. If so, then we can begin to put together a plan. As always, I appreciate your time and enthusiasm for letting your world know about what it is that you do and how valuable it can be until next time message managers. Thanks for joining the conversation.
1: Thanks for joining us on the manage your message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at manage your message podcast.com and Jim Carr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to rating and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.